0: Thanks so much for coming. Um, uh, Tonight uh, is the first night of Hanukkah. and um, I heard uh, Reb Shlomo tell uh, this account. I'm sorry that I don't remember the names of the rebbe's, but here's how the uh, here's here's how it went. Um, There was a big rebbe, and uh, and uh, he had a, a child. And the child got married, and um, to to the daughter of a, of another big rebbe, and um, and so so this was the first Hanukkah that they were married together, and so the daughter was by her her father in law by her uh, her new family's home, and um, she, she she was. Uh, this was the first time she had been away from from her family for for the lighting of the Chanukah menorah, and um, and uh, her father in law, who was a big rabbi himself, lit the Hanukkah menorah. And as soon as he lit the candles, he ran out of the room. Now, uh, the the normative way the is you're supposed to sit with the candles, you know, and you can look into the light you can learn you can have a meal and sing you, you, there's there's a lot of things that you can do but it's um it's uh it's not quote unquote normal <laughs> to light the candle and then run out of the room immediately okay so so um uh the father-in-law later on asked his new daughter-in-law so what'd you think you know, like, how, how was the experience? And she said, well, you know, I don't know the exact words that she used, but the sentiment that she expressed was, she said, honestly, um, when my father lights the menorah, he, he sits and he, he really stays with the menorah for like a while. And, you know, you lit it and ran out of the room. And he looked at her, and this is the end of the story he looked at her and he said to her, he said, you know, instead of asking how it was that I didn't stay with the candles after I lit them, you could have asked me how I was able to light the candles and stand in front of it and still live. In other words... What she wasn't grasping was how extraordinarily deeply he was experiencing the light of the menorah. It was so strong, he felt as though he couldn't stand in front of the light and continue to exist, and he had to run out of the room. Not, God forbid, that he was being very light with the honor of the candles or of what it means. It was the opposite. So, Reb Shlomo said many, 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 many times that the Hanukkah light, the light from the menorah is fixing the eyes. And um, he also said in the name of Rebbi Nachman that it's good for Shadokim, um, for people finding their, their marriage partner. Because, you know, sometimes the problem with finding a marriage partner is people aren't always looking at each other with the right eyes. So if one can fix their eyes, so to speak, maybe they can see within whoever it is they're looking for those qualities which are which are the ones that they really need. Um, on a very, very practical level, um, people recommend smart people recommend if someone is looking for a marriage partner to make a list of the things, of the qualities that they're looking for. The reason why this is actually, mm-hmm. I think, very, very good advice, um, very profound advice, actually, surprisingly, um, is because a lot of times when we look at another person, the most superficial aspects of them, which may be turnoffs, actually, mm-hmm. jump to the forefront... And then they stop our investigation right there. Whereas the reality is, is that if you are actually to make a list of qualities of what you're looking for, that thing which just shuts you off from that person might be 10th or 20th on the list. And yet here you have what we say in contemporary society, the tail wagging the dog. The bottom of the list is influencing the top of the list. And so, and so, people are turning away from people oftentimes for qualities that aren't um, aren't the major qualities. So, so now, I want to talk about Hanukkah and um, and, and and us today. Hanukkah is really a really contemporary holiday. I mean, it's supposed to be that way. Um, eventually I want to talk about Hanukkah and Purim, but we'll go into more depth. Uh, you know, just as an overview, Hanukkah and Purim are both holidays that are post, post, uh, Torah holidays, if you will. I mean, everything is Torah. All of existence is Torah, so there's no, there's no post existence. Because that would still be existence. (laughs) Um, um, But what I mean to say is, after the five books, the Chumash, were finished, you have two holidays in our calendar, which which are which which were incorporated later historically, and that's Hanukkah and Purim. And both of these holidays are basically there to show us how to survive in the exile, how to survive in the exile. And, um, and one of the things that I noticed that they share in common um, is that both of them are addressing one of the the Achilles heels, if you will, of, of spirituality or maybe better said of the human condition uh, that we all go through, which is the sense of abandonment, that we're alone in this world. And this is one of the primary things that we have to, we have to rip the lie from. We have to, we have to expose as a lie. Um, I heard in the name of the Rebbe from Reb Shlomo that one of the ways a, a Malik attacks a person is by telling them that they're all alone. That's one of the ways sort of like the, the spiritual enemy of truth comes to attack us is with this message that we're all alone, which is a lie. You know, Rab Shlomo, many years ago, um, I was there. It was a Rosh Hashanah. He told everyone that wherever you go this year, you have to bring a book. You always have to carry a book around with you, and he meant, uh, you know, like a like a Torah book. And you know, I've tried to take that advice, even if I don't even read the book, just to have the book in my hand. And you'd be amazed when you walk around sometimes you're online at a store, maybe you'll actually just read one thing, and that one thing can actually change your perspective on everything. So I'm going to tell you a teaching that I learned while I was standing in line at a bagel store. (laughs) It came from the Altarebi of Lubavitch. He said the following. Well, this was the bottom line anyway. When the Yetzirah, when the evil Karnasian which is trying to kill us, to destroy us, to separate us from God, to separate us from truth. When it comes to you and tells you something horrendous, something that's just trying to clip your wings off, what you should say back to it is, you don't believe this. Why should I believe this? (laughs) Because what a person has to realize is that The evil inclination works for God. There's only one power in the world. We don't have two separate powers, good and evil. We just have one power in the world. And evil works for God. Now, how are we to understand that? So it says that when the evil inclination comes to you, that it wants you to say no. It's not a separate power. It's just been charged with testing you. This is part of part of our existence in this world. Free choice. That we can choose to recognize that there's a God in this world. Remember, the Hebrew word for world and the Hebrew word for hidden are the same word. Amazingly. Because God is hidden in this world. Ayin mem. Olam. It's the same word. World and hidden are the same word in Hebrew. Because God is hidden in this world. How How hidden? So I heard from Rabbi Citron, who heard from his Rebbe, God is the most hidden He can possibly be, whereas if you search for Him, you can still find Him. If you were any more hidden, if you search for Him, you wouldn't be able to find Him. But if you search for Him, you can still find Him. That's the level of hiddenness, something awesome. So it says, like, the Sutton... When the sudden comes to a person, if you say no to it, it jumps up and dances. If you say yes, it rips its clothes and cries. Okay? So, the sudden, the evil inclination knows the truth. So when it tells you a lie, you say back to it, you don't even believe this. Why should I believe it? It works. Try it. <laughs> I'll tell you another story. Walking around, carrying a safer, I was going to the post office a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I brought a a Chumash with me. Chumash Reishis. And uh, walked to the post office. Filled out some forms. Put it down on the table. Then got in line. There was actually no line. It went very quickly. And... I, you know, like I say, even if you don't read it, just just to carry it around. Maybe, maybe you will, maybe you won't. But he said, carry it around. So, so as I'm leaving, I didn't open it. As I'm leaving, there's a black brother, probably 21. He has a uh, kind of an African style shirt on, but is American, and uh, he says to me, "What's that book?" <laughs> and I said, "Oh, this is a." Uh, it's a Torah book. And, you know, I showed him because, uh, you know, it's an interesting edition. <laughs> and, and he said, and I told him, he said, oh, yeah, look at that. And um, he said, let me ask you a question. What does it mean that, um, what does it mean that King David is standing guard by the Holy Temple? Checking people. And I said, oh, I don't know, you know, I'm not familiar with that, uh, with that Pesach from the Torah. And he said, okay. He said, because I heard that he's checking to see if the men are circumcised. And I said, you know, it could be. I don't know. I'm not familiar with that that passage. And then he said, let me ask you another question. Why are the Jews so successful? He said, blacks and Jews have a lot in common. But the Jews seem to be more successful than blacks. What is the secret of Jew's success? So, anyway, we started talking. I said, you know, it's, I said, we've been killed throughout history in every single land, you know? People want to kill us. You know, so, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you define success exactly, you know? (laughs) So, so we start talking about this. And then, his friend comes over, the sweetest, cutest man. he's probably, I couldn't even tell you, I'd say late 50s and small, you know, like maybe five feet maximum, with a big smile on his face, skinny. And um, I start, somehow the conversation got onto this subject of... Uh, Lech <laughs> lecha, um, which is you know uh, the the portion where Hashem tells uh, Abraham and Sarah to just basically leave everything behind and leave their father's house and their land where they're from and just 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 to go to Israel basically. And as as I start explaining it, I said you know so um, so God says to Abraham that he should go forth. Now, he had already left Ur Kazdim where he was right now. He had already left the previous place. And the person said, that's right, that's right, he did, he did leave. And I said, and now he's going on to this next place. He said, yes, he is, yes, he is. <laughs> and it was so beautiful, I realized that what, what he was doing was that, that that's the dynamic in a lot of, you know, like churches, where if you've ever seen it, I, I've never been in one, but, but if you ever see it on TV and things like that, where... The congregation really interacts with who's who's ever speaking, you know, and in a very affirmative, beautiful way. And it was, it was, it was such a lovely moment. We're in the Beverly Hills post office, you know, learning Torah, you know, and, and then I said, I said, I, okay, I just want to say one thing. I said, you're beautiful and you're beautiful and I have to give you both hugs, you know. So, so we hugged and, um, That was that. So (laughs) that concludes the story. But but you know when Reb Shlomo said carry around a safer, he probably said that he's nifter fourteen years ago. So that was probably sixteen years ago. It's good to be good. It's good to be good because when you put. Torah into the world. When you put truth into the world, it doesn't go away. It just, it just keeps on lasting. Sixteen years ago, a rabbi said something in New York City, and the direct result, not a result or you can figure it out if you're good at math, the direct concrete result was three people hugging each other in Beverly Hills from different backgrounds. This is truth. This is the power of truth. So, so let's get back to Hanukkah. Because Hanukkah is talking about survival in the exile, as is Purim. So, I was thinking about it, you know, because Comparing these two holidays is a subject in and of itself, and a, a connection between the two of them came to me that, that I hadn't seen elsewhere, which is that both of them are addressing randomness, or I should say since there is no randomness and since there is no such thing as coincidence, both of them are fixing the perception of, random, of randomness that we have in this world. How so? Where do we see it? Well, Purim, it's very obvious because the word Purim actually means lottery. It means a lottery. So that is the, that's synonymous with randomness. A lottery. Um, and by Hanukkah, we have this holy minug, this holy custom among the Jews, and you should know that minhagim, especially old minhagim, things that have lasted for generations and generations, even though technically speaking they're customs, nonetheless on a very, very deep level, they're like a taste of nevuah, of prophecy that the Jewish people have had, that they've tapped into something. And if it's lasted, that's sort of, in, in many instances, a stamp of divine approval for that custom. In fact, in certain communities over the years, the Minhagim, the customs, have been so prized that people have put even more emphasis on the Minhagim than on other things, leading, I believe it was the Kotzkarebi, to say very bitterly, if only the Ten Commandments were customs. <laughs> so So what is what's what is sort of the primary minog of custom of Hanukkah? Is the dreidel. And the dreidel is just a model of randomness. You spin it, and where's it going to land? Nobody knows. You just spin it. That's, that's life, right? I just wake up. Hopefully today I won't get hit by a truck. You know? Maybe, who knows? Maybe something else will happen. That's it's a model of randomness. But if you look more deeply into it, the B'nai Yisachar points out something very amazing. You know, the letters on it, especially in exile, outside of Israel, it's Nes, Nes, Gadol, Hayah, Sham. Um, that's what the first letters stand for, which means a great miracle happened there. And if you take those four letters, Nes, Nun, Gadol, Gimel, Hayah, hey and Sham, it adds up to 358, which is the gematria of Mashiach which is the redemption. It's the perfection of the world. Seems like randomness, right? But it's spelling out perfection. So I was thinking, you know, according to the way dreidel is played, I guess people have different rules, but the way I always played it is if it lands on shin, you lose you have to put some money into the pot or whatever you're playing with candies whatever it is shin shin is the letter you don't want right you know but so so that's life too right we have ups and downs and sometimes you land on shin and sometimes you feel like you're parked on shin right but what's the reality the, rea- the reality is that shin is part of what's spelling Mashiach. We're in it. We're in it. We're in it. To be in it means that you, you've already won. I heard Rabbi Green say one time, when a person opens up their eyes in the morning, they've already won. You open up your eyes, You win! <laughs> Because you're still in it, you know. There's a. This sounds like a joke, but this is said by people like the Rambam. Okay, this is like this is this is this is not a light thought. One of the reasons why there's so many mitzvahs is that even if you try not to do one, you're still going to end up doing one anyway. That's one, That's that's a that's a that's an official high level thought. Okay, that's not just a joke. You can't escape them. If you're alive, you're going to do mitzvahs. So, so let's get into let's get into the menorah a little bit more. That means a great miracle happened here. Yeah. Uh, Bernie, I'm not that good. I mean, you got to... <laughs> so... Next week, you'll come back. Next week, it'll still be Chanukah. You'll probably figure it out. So, uh, so, so the Chanukah Menorah. So there's a famous teaching from the Kutzker Rebbe if you look at um, if you look at the the language, um, see it's a whole it's it's a it's a very actually peculiar episode. Um, the the Mishkan, the the holy tabernacle, right, which was in later generations be to be remade as the the holy temple, the Beis Hamikdash. In the desert, um, it was dedicated. And what happened was, uh, each of the tribes had their day where they brought gifts and participated in the inauguration of the, of the, of the Mishkan. It's very exalted, very, very, uh, you know, one of the highest times in the, in the history of the world, um, this period, these days. And, um, the tribe of Levi, which was led by, um, the Akohin, didn't didn't get to give gifts as part of the inauguration and aaron hakohen aaron the high priest felt that maybe he was being punished because he had been he had participated in the sin of the golden calf so he was depressed so to speak and you know was having like a lot of trouble like you know kind of like Figuring out how it is that the leader of all the other tribes are participating in this incredibly exalted event, and somehow he shut out. And then God says to him, Listen, you're going to have something even better. You're going to light the menorah. Okay? So, so, so it says that he, now why is that even better? So the Ramban says that because the dedication of the, the, uh, Mishkan was temporary, so to speak, because that ultimately went away and it was temporary, but lighting the menorahs continued throughout the generations. So he had a, a share in this thing that, that never, never, never stopped. Okay, that's that's one thing, but we haven't gotten to the point yet. When the Torah describes how Aaron lit the menorah, it says that he didn't change, that he didn't vary from the instructions that God gave him in terms of lighting the menorah, so, so Rashi asks a big question on that, or maybe it's Rashi, off, maybe it's the Kutzkar off the Rashi, which is that if the Torah is signaling, pointing out the fact that he didn't alter the instructions of God, and that's why it's going out of its way to say that he did not change. Why is he being praised for for that? In other words, God tells you to do it a certain way, you do it that way. I mean it should be pretty cut and dry. So the Torah should go out of its way to say, oh, he didn't light it his own way, he did it the way he was supposed to light it? Doesn't doesn't sound like he did such a tremendous action that the Torah should go out of his way to praise him. So now listen to this on a very, 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 very deep level, okay? You see, when the world was created, there was something called the Orhaganuz, which was this exalted, exalted, exalted light. This is not the light of the sun. This is not the light of the stars. This shames the light of the sun and shames the light of the stars. And it was the original creation. Okay? And God saw that light and he said, you know something, this light, it's not proper that those who aren't righteous should be able to participate and should be able to bask in this light. So therefore, he hid it away. Or Haganus means the light that's hidden away. He hid away this light, okay? Now the Rokeach says that this light burned for 36 hours. Something very Interesting. If you count the number of candles, excluding the shamists, if you count the number of candles, one the first day, two the second day, three the third day, four the fourth day, if you add them up to the eighth day, it adds up to 36. The number of candles that we light on Hanukkah parallels and is a conduit for the Haganus, this original, original, exalted, exalted light, which will return in the end of days. So the Kutzker Rebbe says, you know what the Torah is saying that Aaron did not change. That means that he, when he lit the menorah, he brought down the Or Haganus, the original light. He did not change. He did not go for this light that we have right now. He went and brought down that original light. And we're still bringing down that original light. So, so what does that teach us on a practical level? You know, I just, I just want to say this over. You know, maybe a few of you didn't hear it yet. What is the meaning of coincidence? It's very important that everyone has this in their head. Because I don't know if um, this happens in your life, but crazy things are happening to me all of the time. All of the time. And, uh, and um, you know, I'll give you just one example, but this is there's so many to choose from, but somehow this just pops into my head. So, I was in shul, um, I don't know, a year or two ago, I don't know when it was exactly, And I was thinking, wow, this is the first Shabbos, this is the anniversary of the first Shabbos that I kept, when I started keeping Shabbos. And I thought, well, what year was that? And then I figured out the year, and I thought, oh, wow, so it's 20 years this Shabbos, exactly 20 years this Shabbos. And then I was just kind of standing in shul, and I thought, well, how many Shabboses is that? So I multiplied, 52 times 20, and it was 1,040. And then all of a sudden it hit me. I had just finished my first week at a new job and the address was 1,040. I thought, you know. Sending you a message. Okay, good. So what is the message? So that's that's the topic of this section. What's, what's, what's the message? How are we supposed to... And everyone's got their own version of this. And... and it happens so often that I that I just here's the usual responses. Wow! Or what are the odds? Or that's amazing! Or that means something! <laughs> or you know, <laughs> everyone has their own way of reacting. But after my trip to Israel just a couple of weeks ago, where a lot of this. Level stuff happened like over and over again. Like within the same day, several things like this were happening within the same day. I was like, okay, once and for all, I have to figure out what this means. What? Okay. So, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna suggest a more practical approach. I have one so, approach that immediately came to my mind that because you came from. Hashem helped you to get such a wonderful job. I I, I'm with you. <laughs> so, so listen to this. And uh, those of you who have heard it, please just, please just open up your hearts and make sure that you're able to say it over. You know, a lot of times sometimes someone says a thought and I've, I've heard the thought and then that's, that's to me sometimes an invitation to tune out. And then I say to myself, if he stops speaking right now, could you go up there and finish his thought? And if you can't, then you didn't hear it the first time. That's what I say to myself anyway. So, this is chapter 3, Mishnah number 18, in Perkei And I want to suggest at least one approach, that this is the meaning of coincidences, okay? This is Rabbi Akiva. He used to say, Beloved is man, human beings, for he was created in God's image. It is indicative of a greater love that it was made known to him that he was created in God's image. As it says, quote, For in the image of God he made man. Beloved are the people Israel, for they are described as children of the omnipresent, It is indicative of a greater love that it was made known to them that they are described as children of the omnipresent. As it is said, you are children to Hashem your God. And the Mishnah goes on. So, God is always running the world. He's always running the world. But when a quote-unquote coincidence happens, God is showing you that He's running the world. God, so to speak, is going out of his way to make known to you that he's running the world. This is an extra level of closeness. So when a person experiences one of these things, they have to understand that God is very close to them at that moment. He's going out of his way to show you that he's guiding your life. So, the first thing a person has to do is really hold on to that hug, so to speak. You're being hugged at that moment. But let's go further. Then you have to realize, well, wait a second. If God is showing me how close he is at this moment right now, that means what I do matters. Okay. And not only that, But if God is showing me how close he is at this one moment right now, or this particular moment, this is called an ace ratzon, a time of favor. We have such a thing. We have moments that are called times of favor, of divine favor. And at those moments, a person has to pray. Because if God is showing you how close he is at that moment, that means the gates are open, and a person has to use that as a unique opportunity to pray. Pray for the redemption of the world. If you know someone who needs something, pray for their needs. If you need something, pray for your needs. So, so now listen to this. If if God is so close. Then, then what am I doing with my life? Someone. The world is driving toward perfection. I was telling this to someone this week. I was talking to a, a, a group. And a person said to me, How do you know that? Well, I said, you know, when God created the world, when he went about to create the world, he envisioned a perfected world, and we're, we're on the road to achieving that. God made us partners with him. How do you know that? So I said to him, okay, so I said, look, when a child is born, when a child is born, that child can't help themselves. They're completely helpless. They need to be taken care of. And yet, as they get older, not only are they able to take care of themselves, but they're actually able to help other people as well. I said, and yet, within that child when he was born was the destiny for them to grow. And within them, even when they were born, even though it wasn't manifest outwardly yet, inside of them, they had all of the tools within them that were going to grow and blossom to become an adult, that they should be able to take care of themselves and take care of other people as well. So that's the same thing with the world. Implanted in the world from the moment that God created the world was this destiny of the perfection and the maturation of the world. So he said, so then the world is like an 80-year-old now. I said, no, I think it's more like... In its, it's like in a prolonged adolescence right now. <laughs> we're still fighting over dumb things. I mean, God willing, we're an 80-year-old in the sense that we're very close to Mashiach. But, you know, things are bothering us that that uh, maybe shouldn't be bothering us. So... The Ramchal very famously points out that a person has to understand why they're in the world and what, what they're driving toward and must have their goal in mind as they're living their life. And this is one of the greatest challenges that all of us have. A lot of us have goals and a lot of us are very high minded. But then a lot of us, and I know I'm speaking for myself, a lot of us then are not necessarily maximizing our time in pursuit of the result of those goals. You know, I once heard a definition of a fanatic. What's a fanatic? This is uh, according to George Santayana. who's a big thinker um, uh, in the 20th century. He's the person who said, Those who forget history are condemned to repeat it. So he said, The definition of a fanatic is someone who redoubles their efforts as they've forgotten their initial purpose. (laughs) (laughs) So our challenge is to be focused on the goal, to figure out what the goal is, to redouble our efforts. Without forgetting what the goal is. (laughs) And without forgetting why we're doing the goal. You know, sometimes people realize, they they have a moment and they realize the truth of Torah. So now, what am I going to do? I am now going, and they they realize the sweetness of Torah. So now, what am I going to do? I am now going to spend the rest of my days yelling at other people to keep the Torah. (laughs) Wait a second, what? There was a disconnect in there. There's a serious disconnect in there. It's, uh, I always think of these cop shows, you know. Maybe the, maybe the, maybe the reason why this line is in every single cop show is because God himself, so to speak, is saying it. Which is, The detective always says to the person in the interrogation room, "We can do this the hard way, or we can do this the easy way." (laughs) You know, God gives us the mitzvahs. God gives us Himself. He gives us He gives us His amazing closeness, even within the exile. He gives them the awesome light. Us, the awesome light of Hanukkah. He tells us, you know something? You absolutely are not alone. And then he says, okay, what are you going to do with all this information? (laughs) How are you going to integrate it? How are you going to integrate it? Okay, have a good week. So you're asking, what's the advice in terms of how to uh, integrate it? So... So I don't know why, but this just popped into my head, which is, Rav Shlomo, um, uh, brought up a uh, kind of like a, a famous question, but he gave uh, his own answer, beautiful answer I think, which is, um, you know, the the, the Passover Hagada uh, is a story of um, how we got taken out of Egypt, uh, and There's something very curious about it, which is, if you look at it, Moses' name isn't mentioned. Now, you know, that's odd. That's odd, since, okay, he was God's emissary, but in terms of who the point man was, Moses took us out of Egypt. All right, it was God. But still, you'd think Moses' name would be mentioned in the Haggadah. It isn't. So, um, so, uh, so Reb Shlomo said in answer to that question, it's a famous question. That um, that uh, Moses, Moshe, we say Moshe Rabenu, Moshe our teacher. Moshe is the ultimate Rebbe. He's the Rebbe, the teacher. He says, but you have two kinds of teachers. You have your you have your your Rebbe, but you also have your parents, your father and your mother. And that there's a level since the the, the Pesach and the, and the Seder is giving over a very deep level of amuna of belief in God, of belief in God's providence and guidance. That there's a certain level of amuna of faith, that is so deep that it's, a parent has to give it over to a child. And that's why this is, that's why Moshe's name isn't mentioned. You don't mention the principal of the school, so to speak, because this is a parent-to-child moment, right? So... This idea of how do you integrate it? I want to maybe build on Reb Shlomo's Torah and say, this is a person-to-person moment. This is a you-to-you moment. You know? This is not an answer that I can give you. But this is an answer for sure that you can give you. And, um, and the thing is, is that what's so, what's so awesome is, you know, like the person, a person once gave me what I thought was like my favorite example of this people are afraid of the Torah because they're so used to religion, they're so used to bad religion. The world is so used to bad religion. And they think that, you know, let me just get you and I'll get your money and I'll control your life and I'll just subject you to my movement. And that's what people think of religion. And that's not Torah. And that's not what Torah is supposed to be. And... And, and people, paradoxically, counterintuitively, do not lose their identity and their individuality when they keep the mitzvahs. And the example which I wanted to give a second ago was that look at people's sukkahs. Everyone, the, you've got a whole volume of the Talmud, which is a very detailed discussion of how to build a sukkah. And yet you can see you can have kosher sukkahs, and if you look at people's sukkahs, everyone's sukkah is different. Everyone has a different sukkah. You know? Because your individuality will manifest itself in a beautiful way, but in even an even better way. Because you're gonna be in harmony with yourself and with the universe. So, so the thing is, is that there's such a wide variety of approaches within the tense of Torah. And if a person is operating from this paradigm, from the paradigm of Torah to Emmet, of the truth of the Torah, then they can give themselves an answer to this question of how to do it, and it will be a true answer, and it will be a beautiful answer. And just as a support for this, let me just mention another Torah from Reb Shlomo, which is that our tradition is is that everyone who was Jewish and everyone who will ever become Jewish by choice to convert to Judaism, all of their souls we're at Mount Sinai for the giving of the Torah. Every Jew and every Jew that's ever going to be was at Mount Sinai. And we got the Torah. So it says in the Gemara that when you're in your mother's womb, an angel comes and teaches you the Torah. So Rabbi Shlomo asks a fantastic question. If I already, if my neshama is already at Mount Sinai, what do I have to learn it again in my mother's womb for? I already got it. So listen to what he says. He says, there's two aspects to the Torah. There's the national mission, that you got at Mount Sinai. But your individual mission, what you're supposed to do, that you get inside your mother's womb. Right? That's, that's the special truth that gets communicated to you individually. You know, I'll tell you something. I, I sort of built on that, um, that teaching a little bit. If you look at the word in Hebrew for um, someone who is pregnant... It's it's a, the root of the word, to be pregnant, comes from the word har, which is mountain. Now, the Torah was given at Har Sinai, at Mount Sinai. So, to become pregnant, if you were to take a super literal version of that in Hebrew, it would be to become mountainized, right? And if you think about it, that's a very poetic thing, because... A person's stomach expands and it's like a little mountain. And Har Sinai was famous for being the smallest mountain. You know, because it was very humble. Okay? So, so in other words, what's going on is your baby is inside this mountain learning the Torah. Right? So, so it really is. It's like Har Sinai. You know? So, uh, anyway. Anyway. You ask me the question, I'm asking you back the question. And you don't have to tell me the answer.